0: Hello and thank you for listening to the Scottish Centre for Global History podcast. My name is Lauren Cochrane, a PhD student at the University of Exeter and former student at the University of Dundee. I'm talking to Dr Alex Sessa today who completed his PhD at the University of Southampton in June 2021. Hello Alex, thank you for agreeing to participate in the podcast and agreeing to share your research with us. Could you introduce yourself for our audience?
1: Hi, my name is Alex Sessa. I I did a PhD titled Jane Haining and the Christianization of the Holocaust, Constructing and Deconstructing the Memory, Myth and Martyrdom of Scotland Schindler. I I hold a PhD in, of course, as you said, in history, Holocaust studies, memory studies, uh, and I hold an MA in public history. And uh, I'm originally from from the United States, and I'm presently authoring articles that look at memory studies, um, the rise of the far right, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, racism, things like that.
0: So as I said, you finished your PhD in 2021. Could you provide a summary of your thesis for us?
1: Sure. So I looked at a specific case study. As I mentioned, her name was Jane Hayding. And she was a, a uh, she was a Scottish missionary with the uh, the Church of Scotland. Uh, the Church of Scotland established a uh, missionary enterprise specifically towards the Jewish people, and this was established sometime in the late eighteen thirties, early eighteen forties. Basically, what the church was doing was they were finding Jewish communities with the intention of evangelizing Jewish children. So the, the nature of Miss Haining's work was that she went, she went to work as a, as a house matron in Budapest from about 1932 until her death in 1944. And as a result of her work, she, she actually, she chose to remain in Budapest during the war years. And she was arrested by the Gestapo in 44, shortly after Germany invaded Hungary and she was arrested and, and after a brief detainment in budapest she was sent to auschwitz where she uh, she tragically died and the church of scotland has been very reluctant very uh, eager rather to to demonstrate this sort of christian uh, heroism this christian spirit of her her commitment to jewish children but uh, within the the Scottish Jewish community, there is quite a bit of reluctance to uh, to accept this narrative. You know, and this has a lot to do with with two elements, really. One is that her work involves ultimately involved the conversion of Jewish individuals. And also, there's really no evidence that she she actually physically saved anyone's life. And so, as a result of this, there there, there has been some uh, sort of conflicting narrative between the Church of Scotland. And, and Scottish, Scottish Jewry. Uh, and that was really the nature of my thesis. It, it looked into memory studies, and from that it, it kind of expanded a bit further beyond that component to look at a, a wider sort of uh, Christian element to uh, the Holocaust narrative that we, that we, we sometimes see in our, our Judeo-Christian um, world.
0: Why did you choose to focus on the story of Miss Haining? What were your motivations that brought you to study this?
1: I, I I probably should tell you you're probably biased as I am but I just really liked Scotland.
0: <laughs> I was
1: very interested in the um, the connection between Scotland and the Holocaust or at times the apparent lack thereof. You know there there isn't this overwhelming connection that we see with you know with Scotland and and the Holocaust. It's it's untrue that Britain was unaffected by the showa. That's that's just not true. But with Scotland in particular, if you sort of take them as if you were to look at them as an independent nation, they specifically have really two main links with the Holocaust. One is through the kinder transport. There were children who came over from Nazi occupied territories who, uh, who went up to Scotland to live with families. And the other is Jane Haining, it's untrue that she was the only Scottish individual who who perished in the Holocaust, as is sometimes claimed. That's you know, the, the, there's really no evidence to you know, there's evidence to the contrary of that claim. Yeah, I mean, I I really started more sort of in the vein of of, of a heroic component. I was interested in uncovering a story about uh, about heroism and uh, why she was this great martyr and and this and and I I, I wanted to look more broadly. At uh, Rescuer Studies, I was interested in Princess Alice of Battenberg, who is um, Prince Philip's mother, who uh, she herself uh, was responsible for rescuing Jews during the Holocaust period in Greece. I was interested in Frank Foley, who issued diplomatic papers and visas to Jewish individuals in Germany. I was interested in Nicholas Winton, who saved over 660 Czech Jewish children. And and I was just very interested in in the, more in the morality component. I mean, what made a person choose to do this? You know, what made someone try to, you know, save lives at, at a time when most people did not. But what ultimately began to emerge from this narrative about Jane Haining was more a relationship with how she is how she's used as a reflection of of Scottish Christian values how you know there's there's this component to how i think Scottish identity is shaped around heroism about um you know Robert the Bruce about, about wanting to um you know i mean the, the, the this idea that um that for instance that Rome the romans were unable to invade Scotland. When historians generally agree that it wasn't so much that they couldn't, they didn't find anything in Scotland that they really wanted or valued. So there's this idea of how I think Scottish individuals see themselves, and that's and that's not you know an impunity, and that's not to contest that. It's just sort of meant to contextualize that a little bit. And I think more broadly that it, it, there became this element too of the evolution of you know, a, a sort of nominally Christian nation, you know, like the UK, like the US, where I'm from, and how this, the Holocaust sort of emerged in popular consciousness from being something that was more about the antithesis of, of Christian values to the explicit destruction of Jewish life on a mass scale. And and I think that Jane Haining, she reflects that to some degree.
0: I find it really interesting where you mentioned about the kind of lesser-known links about Scotland and the Holocaust. I think, mm. especially in terms of histories of, of the Second World War in general, the UK is is kind of pitted, and it's pitted itself, as standing alone, you know, and also, mm. also because we are an island, we had, we didn't have the same direct experience of concentration camps as people that were in continental europe did so i find it really interesting that you've highlighted this gap on this discussion about so the scottish experience and scottish implications particularly in relation to that history of the holocaust yeah it's it's interesting
1: i mean in in 2010 under gordon brown whom himself he you, you know Scottish background, he come, you know, as a background in the Church of Scotland specifically, he introduced an award program that was called the Heroes of the Holocaust Award, which awarded courageous Britons, basically, who were noted to have taken action during the Holocaust period, you know, again, because most, most did not. And I think that's an important distinction when we look at rescuer studies, specifically, you know, most people were what, what we call bystanders. In fact, some scholars they do uh, specifically break the Holocaust down into perpetrators, victims, and bystanders. That you know you have that sort of triad, that 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 this sort of relationship between those three. That without those components, you could not have really had the Holocaust. And so that's one. Potential analysis that the you know that's that's one way of looking at it, but this idea of and I spoke to a few curators, a few historians, you know this idea of the the heroes of the Holocaust. I mean, it's or Britain's heroes of the Holocaust. It's 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 a troubling term. It's become a bit of a, a bugbear for me, if that I think that's quite a quite an American term, I think, but a, a bit of a, it, it's something that I, I don't I don't agree with. And, and a few people don't agree with, because the Holocaust was not there is nothing heroic about the Holocaust. There is no heroic component to it. There were those who took action. Yes, there were those who were selfless. But as a rule, you know, the Holocaust is not something we should look at in a heroic terms i don't think and i think that that leads to a distortion of the historical narrative you know the historical memory of the holocaust as the destruction of six million jews throughout europe it's uh, and and, you know some other area north africa and channel islands of course being a connection to britain but um yeah i mean so this idea that britain sort of it, it, that there's this, this, let's, let's present ourselves as the specific heroic, you know, having this community of people who were who were heroic and that we can now not only that but that we'll use this as a model for for teaching people about the holocaust that we'll use this as a model for you know how to act when we're confronted with intolerance with hatred surely it's that is a positive thing to do to to act you know in the, the name of others when you see people being mistreated but i don't think that that's an appropriate way of reflecting on the Holocaust, in particular. And I think it's this is especially true, Lauren, as we face a world without survivors, you know. I I met a survivor just a few weeks ago. Who she's 83 now, which so she was actually quite young. She was very young, but she herself now is you know in her you know in her 80s. It's it's becoming harder and harder to find survivors who are able to speak about their experiences. So I, I think that the uh, dilution of Holocaust memory, the idea that uh, what I call competing narratives, so this the idea that we can look at the Holocaust as this sort of Christocentric heroic narrative, you know that becomes that. That's a challenge. That's a challenge for historians and for curators uh, as we are rapidly moving to a world in which survivors are no longer present.
0: So, could you tell us the main arguments of your thesis?
1: Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, well, in a nutshell, I, I mean, my thesis it, it was very interdisciplinary. What I did because it. It transcends history, it transcends, you know, the Holocaust, it transcends rescuer studies, religious studies, and, and memory studies in particular. What I look at, you know, when I look specifically at Jane Haining, I look a lot at what I call cultural scripts. And this idea is the notion that memory is constructed by sort of common scripts that, we, that we're that we exposed to. For me, a very big cultural script that we see is film, television, media. You know, one of the big emerging themes of the Jane Haining narrative kind of came about with the release of the film Schindler's List. Uh, of course, Jane Haining had been discussed prior to that time, but there appears to have been uh, a bit of an explosion in her in her popularity with that uh, with the release of that film, and a lot of people do they talk very considerably about how she, she is recognized as a righteous gentle by Yad Vashem, and her her memorial tree was planted very near that of Oscar Schindler uh, in Jerusalem at Yad Vashem, and 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 people people within the church are very quick to uh, to talk about that. So there there is that element that's a bit of ethereal about, about, you know, memory studies and and so forth. And I also talk about personal memory, but within the church, it's important to note that that personal memory, it's, it sort of transcends the collective because there there was almost, I guess, how would I put this, a cult of memory, if you like, that that surrounds the Haining narrative. So one of the, Earlier tributes to Miss Haining are two stained glass windows in the uh, Queen's Park Church in Glasgow, to which she belonged before she went off to uh, to serve for the mission. And it, it it characterizes Haining in a very religious context as this sort of ideal upstanding Christian missionary, and some of the people who I spoke to, I did, I did a few oral history projects with people. I, I sort of picked apart their 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 narrative, you know, their their personal narratives, their personal interpretation of Jane Haining. and uh, it was just really fascinating because people they knew who she was before they again before they knew her, and their their understanding of her. Was very much constructed around these these religious scripts, almost these this religious iconography, this religious uh, the religious texts, and so forth. So within a a Christian setting, it makes sense that the concept of martyrdom, that the concept of, of of a servant who is willing to suffer in the name of you know their Lord in the name of Christ, that would make sense. That that would very much I think make sense in a memory context and it also speaks to the wider history of the mission in Hungary and this is one of the justifications that i think have been used to excuse jane Haining from you know talking about the, you know the fact that she was you know involved in missionary work was that in Hungary you could not change your religion without a parents consent until you were 18 years old and so it became impossible for them to actively you know to make you change your religion so it wasn't that they came in to your life and said to you you will be a christian you will give up judaism and so forth they didn't do that they didn't operate like that what they did was they actually they housed christian and jewish students together and they they had you know jewish services jewish you know lessons lessons in jewish history and jewish culture and they encouraged students to you know to have this this sense of you know, Jewish faith. But the idea of Christian kindness, so to speak, the idea of of sort of, frankly, winning them over with kindness, of, of demonstrating a Christian life was always a part of the component of proselytization. And it's interesting how the church continues to interweave that narrative into how Jane Haining is remembered and commemorated today. It's not that she was a missionary. It's not that she was trying to convert anyone. It's that she was a good Christian. And see, look at her, look at how she lived her life. This is proof of that. But in truth, that was what the mission entailed. So her memory encompasses all of that. And and that's really, I think, with respect to to the, the memory studies element, it really is, you really, one has to focus on the cultural scripts or the jelly mold effect that we, our memories are, and our understanding of our memories are shaped by the context in which we live and the values that, you know, we cherish. And uh, and I, that's very true of Jane Haining.
0: Yeah, I think that's uh, a really important aspect kind of of this story and in general of, of any kind of, when you look at commemoration and public memory and public histories, as you know, is what narratives are being brought to the to the fore and how is that being shaped. I think that's a really the interesting part of your project to look at that.
1: Yeah, and it's it's been um it's been very fascinating to talk to people uh within the church and to talk to how people through the years have really started to look at Miss Haining and to look at how she, you know, should be remembered. And um I think that as that, as understanding of the Holocaust developed, I think that was really when there emerged more of an understanding of the, you know, what they call the sacrifice that she made. There really became this understanding of, well, I think one way of putting this is that if we look, if we're to look at an oral history context in the early nineteen eighties, the church that she belonged to in Budapest, which is called Saint Columba's Church, um, it's still a part of the Church of Scotland today. Uh, there's still a you know, a functioning relationship with the church. There was a minister there, uh, recently passed away. Um, I I think it was a COVID death, actually. But uh, I got to know him a little bit, and I got to talk to him. And it was really important to him to start to hold reunions for former pupils. And he started doing this in the early 1980s. And his exact words were, theologically, it was very interesting, because he said that you had people who were Jewish, you had people who were Christians, you had people who were born Jewish, but became Christian, and you had people who were nothing. And, you know, within the Jewish group, you had people who were practicing Jews and people who were Jews, but they didn't practice. So he said it was very interesting theologically. But everyone kind of came together and started to talk about Jane Haining, and they started to share their memories of Jane Haining. And the one thing that they did kind of agree upon was they were touched by her her Christian character and her commitment to the church and her commitment to the children, and it became evident that she had died. Um, And when they learned how she had died, it was was really... um, really terrible and terrifying to them. This was especially because for many of them, they had come to understand that their own family members had been killed in the Holocaust. And the sense that Jane Haney, that she had the option, she had the the ability to flee to safety, she could have gone back to Scotland, but didn't, this is sort of pushed for a further concept of of the christian martyrdom yeah and i, I think that the, and i hope that that kind of explains more about the 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 memory studies component and how that's been because it is it's very ethereal the component of how she's how she's been remembered and and uh and that was that was a very big challenge with with this research you know, trying to make clear that it was theory there was a theory component to memory studies but that it was being backed up by actual case studies that it was actually You know, there was trying to apply theory to how people were remembering individually, you know, in a one to one conversation, how they were remembering in groups. So when people sat down together and talked about her and how she had her sort of legacy had evolved more collectively within the church community, both in Budapest and in Scotland.
0: So we'll talk a little bit more about methodology in a minute. I'm just curious as to whether you did any research in terms of the media reaction to her death. I mean, you, you've spoken about how the church had learned of her death and how she died and how they reacted to that. But was there kind of any immediate wider public outcry or anything in, in the British press? Do Did you find anything?
1: In the immediate sense, not really. And my understanding of that, I mean, her death certificate, I was able to find there was a brief letter looking into the circum, you know, there, there, there was the home office did want to initially look into the circumstances surrounding her death. And those, those are things that are on file, the National Archives and Q. I mean, people can go and read more about them. She was in Auschwitz for Auschwitz one for two months. Her death certificate, the official cause is basically ill health that, you know, she became ill while she while she was there and, and she perished. And what happened to her was, you know, you know, please don't mistake me, what happened to her was genuinely terrible. She did suffer greatly as a you know, as a result of being sent to Auschwitz and she perished there, of course. So I, I'm not in any way trying to diminish the fact that she was murdered. And that she herself became a holocaust victim it's it's more a question of whether or not she is you know the concept of heroic christian martyr who died for jewish people is applicable in a memory sense so that's i I wanted to present that too but with respect to this sort of outcry there doesn't appear to have been that. you know i mean the truth is that many people died during the war and it was it was a horrible time there, the church initially attempted to memorialize her, and she had two sisters who were living at the time. And uh, I think at least one of them was living in Canada at this point. But it was important to them that she be memorialized in some way. And there was a desire to see her remembered. You know, there was a desire to, for her to be honored by family members, by by the church by her community by her friends by her peers and um what ultimately happened was there was a, a decision to rebuild the you know part of the cafeteria portion of the of the uh, the church in her name but it ultimately it came down to they they put up a plaque they erected the uh the stained glass windows in in glasgow and and that was really about it and it, it wasn't For a lot of years that she uh she would be discussed again it wasn't really until her her niece who is alive today she lives in northern ireland it wasn't until she was you know 10 11 12 years old and and her niece was born i think only a few years after the war ended so really you know a number of years had gone by when when jane had died at this point that her niece was given a book that was about her, her late aunt. And they just sort of said, this is who she was. This is what she did. And she died, but, but people didn't really want to talk about it. People wanted to put the war behind them. And I I think, so it really wasn't until many years had gone by that, that, that there was more of a conversation, you know, as people were getting older, more of a desire to understand who she was and, and what she did and how she died.
0: So, what contributions has your research made to the wider scholarship on your topics?
1: Well, one of the things, and this was very important for me to point out, and and this, in some respects, it, it falls in in line with with other areas of my writing. I write a lot about antisemitism. I write about memory studies. I write about Holocaust distortion. And for me, it was very important to point out the dangers, the potential dangers of what as what I call competing narratives. And it was important for me to contextualize that and to be able to demonstrate in a clear manner, to be able to present an argument that competing narratives do exist, but they're not really okay. You know, it's 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 very important that the Holocaust narrative be understood for what it was. It was the systematic destruction of European Jews. And for me, if nothing else, I mean, my hope is to eventually turn this into a book. I'm you know presently looking for funding on that. So this is this is research that I, I will add. That's that's ongoing. Um, it hasn't it hasn't just you know gone away. It's it's still there. For me, I think it's important to to do a few things. I think it's important to develop Scotland's Holocaust commemoration um, and it's you know de- developing some kind of a, a connection with the Holocaust in a, in a very in a very historical, respectful, clear narrative that is consistent with Holocaust representation, that is consistent with survivor testimony with the perspectives of victims and survivors and their families, and not one that looks at things like the Christian understanding of martyrdom. Uh, because I think for a lot of the people surrounding Jane Haney, who were sur- surrounding with this this me- the memory studies, that's become a very big problem. One of the things that I observed while I was doing this research was that there was a very small church in Haining's hometown. And in order to get a you know part of the National Lottery Fund to have their roof redone, they had to have some kind of a historical... Uh, component, And in their own words, they had a gold mine, and that's a direct quote, with the Haining legacy. So they were able to get 20,000 pounds for a new roof, but they had to present uh, some kind of a memorial or some kind of an exhibition around this woman. And one of the things that they were doing was they were actually cutting out felt yellow stars, and they were selling them to children. And this was this the the connection with that is that when Haining before shortly before she uh, was arrested, she was required by law to sew yellow stars onto the clothes of the Jewish students, and she cried when this happened. And I, and I do believe that probably is true that you know she was moved by it, but. It has it wasn't properly contextualized what they did it was it was meant to demonstrate a Christian kindness and this shows two problems. One is that you have a community who are looking so squarely at the Christian perspective that they're not really contextualizing the Holocaust in any meaningful way outside of that so that that's a problem another problem is that the perspectives of jewish individuals are not included no jewish person no jew you know no group of you know jewish people no you know that they've never really been actively included in the process of discussing jane haining in scotland at least it's just it doesn't, it really very rarely happens. And that was a complaint that I received from, you know, some members within, you know, the, the Jewish community that that they had a problem with that. That there's a there's this discussion that is central to the Holocaust that is excluding Jewish people, you know, maybe, maybe not deliberately, but it's it's trying to look at the Christian component of the holocaust and you know and that's a problem so my hope is that what this research will do is that it will find some way of contextualizing Jane Hayning a little bit further I, I don't wish to see her entirely whitewashed from history but I do wish to see her contextualized a bit further and to see the, the the Scottish mission to the Jews contextualized a bit further. Missionary work has been central to Christian Jewish relations in Scotland for hundreds of years. And I, I think it's, I think that this project has, I, I hope will have the potential to kind of um, illuminate that a bit further, you know, to be able to expand, expound upon that component of, of uh, Scottish history.
0: I think it's really important to add kind of nuance to these discussions, and it's understandable that a church cutting out some stars and telling the children is problematic. But if you can contextualize that better, that can kind of fix that problem.
1: And they had to; they were asked to to not do that anymore because it, some members, you know, you know, local Jewish people, you know, Jewish groups, they went to the the church they went to the exhibition and of course their response was we had no idea how bad it was until we saw the stars we just had no idea so that was a problem that was uh, that was a pretty big big problem and um it's it's unfortunate that that ecumen you know ecumenical dialogue has so failed you know that, that any any discussion of the holocaust has to include the Jewish people, and you know, within some of these Christian circles, that hasn't really happened at all. And it, it that that need that needs to be resolved, um, and there needs to be more of more of a concentration on Holocaust studies that examine the perspectives of of the victims, you know, not on the perspectives of the church. That's a problem.
0: Your project is definitely interdisciplinary Um, and you've discussed a little bit about memory studies religious studies could you talk a bit more about your methodology and the types of sources that you use
1: yeah i mean oral history was a very big component discussing the methodology is very hard because this was so this project was kind of all over the place in fact i'm not sure i should go on the record saying it there were times i just didn't really think well i think with any you'll know this any phd it, it can be so massive you think how the hell am i going to finish this it's it's too much but you know i was very interested in doing something with oral history so i i was very quick to to use that and uh, and i wanted to talk to people who knew jane haining i wanted to understand that and i'm very glad i I did because if, at least a few of them, since I spoke with them, have died. Um, one woman, she said to me, I've never really shared this with anyone before. And within a year of that conversation, she died. So I, I was very grateful that I got to to do that. Um, I looked at, I tried to educate myself as much about the Holocaust as I possibly could. I read David Cesarani's uh, The Final Solution I looked at Lawrence Reese's uh, The Holocaust a New History. I uh, I tried to understand Scottish history as much as I could. I tried to understand the, you know, conceptions of Scottish history of Christian life, of Jewish life in Scotland. So that was a very big component. And I also looked further afield at representations within the media surrounding the Holocaust. I became very interested in a lot of Andy Pierce's work, who I've actually gotten to know Andy. He's, you know, a really great guy. Um, and he was a, a sort of mentor during a few stages throughout the PhD process. He's currently at UCL. And um, you know, I, I really I tried to focus on. The relationship that was, you know, that was between media studies and the emergence of things like um, there was in the 1970s, there was the World at War series, which looked at uh, it had an entire episode called Genocide that examined the Holocaust and examined the fact that the the overwhelming majority of uh, victims of Nazi crimes were Jews and they were targeted for no other reason that they were Jews. There was the television miniseries Holocaust Which featured a very young Meryl Streep, um, as you may know, and the emergence of Holocaust literature like Schindler's Ark, which was adapted into uh, the film Schindler's List. So I I tried to look at as many sources like that within that vein as was possible. One of the uh, individuals who I also looked at was uh, Corey Ten Boom. She authored a book called The Hiding Place she and her family were hiding jews in the netherlands uh, during the holocaust period and she really made no secret about the fact that she was a part of the reason that she felt such affection for the jewish people was because of biblical prophecy her belief that it was the you know her mission as an evangelical christian to bring jews into the into the church and uh, She was actually, she and her family, they were, you know, sent to Ravensbrook, And while there, she was still trying to convert Jewish people. She didn't really make much of a secret of that. And she herself suffered. She lost family members. And one of the things that I explained further was that actually the televangelist, Pat Robertson, uh, befriended her and had her on his show, uh, The 700 Club, where she talked about forgiveness, hope, faith, uh, and how she maintained these things during the Holocaust period. And again, what she experienced was horrible, and it's, you know, but it's it's important to bear in mind that this is, in a, in a nominally Christian society, this is a further example of removing the Jewish perspective from the Holocaust and placing it on a, a nominally Christian Experience. Even within the narrative of the Oscar Schindler character, whose moral character is somewhat debated by historians today, he was a baptized Catholic, you know. So it it really is about this a man who is at least Catholic in name only. Although, of course, he did not, you know, anyone who knows, I mean, he was a womanizer, an adulterer, a heavy drinker. He was not someone who led. By a Christian example in any real sense, but yet I think people will appreciate that, you know, for a man who is at least a name a Catholic who was rescuing Jews. One criticism of that story of Schindler's Ark and then later Schindler's List is that it's it's not a story that's about the destruction of Jews, which is what is central to Holocaust memory. It's about their rescue and their rescue at the hands of someone who at least came from a Christian culture. So that's what I I tried to really look at. I tried to examine a bit Further with with this research, that that became very important um, in understanding that and being able to combine all of these different disciplines, which was a uh, uh, no no small task. <laughs> so that was a uh, yeah, and it was it was it was, a, it was a good experience though. It was I I learned a lot about many different things from all the sources I was looking at.
0: Was there any specific source that you came across which was particularly interesting or significant to your thesis or surprising or just something that really stands out in your brain from from the whole process?
1: There is actually, there's one thing. One area of reading that stands out to me examined, it examined memory studies and it looked at... Mm-hmm. Wartime experiences in Paris, uh, as opposed to those in London. So, you would, of course, in London, there was the Blitz. Uh, Paris also faced, you know, heavy bombardment and loss of life, as you know, but uh, that is often less represented in popular media. So there was a woman who, she was doing a case study, and it was very much focused on oral history. And she she had this, um, this story about this family who they had a laundromat. And it was something to the effect that she said that during the war, what they were talking about was their experiences were about family issues. They were about... Um, the, you know, how to run a laundromat in a time of war, how to, you know, just, it, it was more domestic issues. It really didn't have to do with the war, but you go to, you know, people who were in London at the time. And of course it was all about, you know, we, the fear and the the courage that one had to have and, you know, going on about, and that's, you know, again, not to say that it wasn't a fearful time for both, but this is the key is that the Blitz has been depicted so much within popular culture that bombings in Paris were not really. So that is an example of the jelly mold effect, that where people are getting their understanding from is not entirely from their actual ability to remember the events. It's coming from uh, popular culture. It's coming from film and television. Uh, And to me, that was like a light bulb moment. I just, I thought that was just the coolest thing (laughs) that uh, and I I thought a lot about my own life and, you know, things I remembered. And of course, you know, being um, a child of the nineties and the early aughts, you know, I mean, so much of my upbringing had to do with, you know, film and television, you know, media and uh, I often think about my grandparents and great grandparents, having known one of my great grandparents who was born before the twentieth century. It was very young when she died, but this is a woman who she lived. You know, she grew up before there was this bombardment of media culture, and uh, you know, a lot of the stories she had about. Her upbringing had to do with, similarly, it was like neighborhood things. It was people she knew, riding, you know, she lived in New York City. She used to ride the, you know, there was a trolley in New York City that she used to ride and you know, interesting little things. You know, people's houses, you know, she didn't really talk about World War One, But, you know, my parents and even my grandparents, they talked a lot about the war. They talked about... You know, my parents talked a lot about John F. Kennedy's assassination. And and the truth is that while I'm sure they were very profound things to them, they were always bombarded with media surrounding these things. You know, it it was, you know, my grandparents had radio, they had films, they had newsreels. And my parents grew up with, you know, in the early years, you know, television was an emerging medium in people's lives in the 50s and 60s. And so... What people remember and how they remember them, they are it, it's not entirely accurate. It's based on a, a wide array of um, external sources, including media. And that was what I really came to learn about the jelly mold effect. That was a really, just such a cool little thing to uncover and start reading about.
0: <laughs> I find that really interesting because um, a lot of what my PhD looks at is British visual culture and popular memory and how British people through the media predominantly have remembered colonial warfare, you know, British colonial emergencies. And it's definitely appears to me that the media and bombardment of images and newsreels and television and film have had a massive impact on how people remember things that Mm. wouldn't necessarily be how they would have perceived it if they hadn't seen those things. So I find that really interesting in terms of my own research. Yeah. To take things a little bit further away from your immediate PhD work. So I understand that you're involved with the Historians Magazine.
1: Yeah, since it's, it's been a very exciting um, experience to be involved with them, we are an emerging uh, publication. We are one of the fastest growing uh, magazines in Britain. And uh, we just released our uh, ancient history edition. We've got a few more coming up, we have a medieval edition coming up. We have uh, a food edition, history of food coming up. We have history of film, uh, M- history of empire coming. So we have a lot of really exciting things that are uh, coming our way. And uh, we're always looking for new writers. We I have a few ideas that I'm interested in writing about myself. So yeah, I mean we're we're always looking for uh, new people to write for us. Anyone who has an article idea. Uh, we're very inclusive and we're a very diverse and dynamic publication and uh, we're always looking for new people to come write for us. So uh, anyone out there who's interested should really get in touch.
0: So just to finish our discussion, mm-hmm. I wonder if we could talk a little bit more about your public history work. I know that you were a curatorial assistant at the Imperial War Museum.
1: Well, yeah, I should I should stress that that was a volunteer position. That that's uh, I don't uh, I don't want to take any any credit for uh, things for roles I did not hold. But yes, I I, I worked um, I assisted the curatorial team with the the new uh, Holocaust galleries that were there, uh, which was a great experience. They have one of the leading Holocaust exhibitions out there. It's, it's just fascinating. It is the premier Holocaust exhibition in the United Kingdom, and anyone who is interested in the subject, of course, should go and and see it. I think everyone, it's something everyone needs to needs to see and to understand. You know, it, it was really, it was a really rewarding experience to, to volunteer on that project. You you had this understanding that you were doing something special, that you were doing work that was important and meaningful. I actually do on the well, we're on the subject of of public history. I I hold an MA from Royal Holloway in public history. And I got to do a small project on the kinder transport with the Wiener Holocaust Library. And uh, I've maintained a pretty good relationship with the Wiener Library through the years. I'm actually, I'm going to be giving a talk on uh, on Jane Haining and the role of um, her letter that she sent, she sent a letter from Auschwitz uh, to the church while she was, um, uh, while she was there. And um, yes, it's part of their new exhibition that they're doing. So May 15th, anyone who is interested in uh, in hearing my discussion should, should come along and uh, yeah, I'm writing a number of a number of articles on um, memory studies. I write pieces on antisemitism. I actually I I try to combine my public history work with a bit of sort of journalism, um, if one likes. I I got to interview a uh, Ukrainian actor who is living in Kiev, and um, I'm really interested in telling his story. You know, we we spoke for about an hour over Skype and um really interested in being able to share his perspective on on war and living with the war, living with the threat of war, you know, every threat of violence every single day. Yeah, so it's I've I've, I've done a, quite a few things. I've, I've been very fortunate to sort of dip my toe quite a bit into the uh, the the public history world, and to to be able to try to try to make for one to try to make um, history more accessible, but also to to be able to contextualize and to analyze uh, how we remember things in the public sphere you know, and to try to break down the public's relationship to history and to to collective memory. Those things are very important to me.
0: That's great. Seems like you've made quite an impact already.
1: Well, I I hope so. I'd like to to continue to do so, you know, to continue making an impact. But um, one one step at a time, I think.
0: (laughs) Well, that is going to bring our discussion to a close. Thank you for joining us, Alex, and I wish you all the best in your future work. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for having me.